Good morning. Today we will be reading from Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man cannot be served to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Micah. The sport of professional football was once described by a Brit as 22 guys desperately in need of rest, being watched by 70,000 people desperately in need of exercise. And sometimes I wonder if there are parallels to the modern Western version of church, where you have a few leaders and key volunteers who are working and working and laboring and serving and are exhausted to, in some sense, put out a product that is merely consumed by a bunch of other people. And I would not describe our church that way by God's grace, but when I look at that as a whole, that is true of the Western church, I don't think it's a numbers problem or a ratio problem. I don't even think it's primarily a behavioral problem. I think it's an identity problem because many of us simply don't understand who Jesus calls his disciples to be and who he says, this is who you are. So we're in Mark 10 this morning that Micah was gracious to read for us. And I want us to continue to note each week this rabbinic model of discipleship, that Jesus was not a teacher who, like a modern classroom maybe, just dispensed information or data that you are supposed to memorize and repeat on a test to get a grade, but Jesus is more of, um, I mean, he was a rabbi. He was also the son of God. But he is one who has apprentices. So they are spending time with him, intimately connecting with him in relationship. And he's modeling for them a way of life, a practice of life. And again, so much of this chart that we've been looking at week to week is just the way of Jesus and how he modeled that and how we can then follow in his footsteps. And so... I don't want you to ever think of success in the Christian life as like, I know something, but more as like, I am walking with Jesus in faith and I'm becoming more and more like him by his kindness at work in my life. So we're talking about the practice of service this morning. And the first thing I want you to note from this text, which I think is obvious, is that Jesus teaches on service. So as they're following him, and there is this, and I'll set the context for you in just a moment, there is a pause here in the conversation where Jesus just says, like, stop, guys, I need to teach you something. 
Okay, so hear my words. And that context is that as they're walking along and just spending time together as a group of disciples with Jesus, James and John kind of get the jump on the other 10. Because they start thinking, okay, if Jesus is the Messiah as we believe, and if he's going to set up this kingdom as we believe he will, there's some pretty special spots that he's going to be giving away to someone. And that is the, the main positions of honor at his right hand and his left hand. And so they go to him and just literally say, hey, when you come in your kingdom, since we thought of this first, can we get those two spots? And what they're really asking is, Jesus, will you give us power? Will you give us this big promotion? Will you, will you make a big deal about us so that we have authority over other people? We want honor from other people. We want to be in charge. We want other people to come and serve us because isn't that what like, being a king and being in a kingdom is all about? The disciples have already just had this same conversation. Now we're jumping into the middle of a text. But if you turn back maybe a page or two in your Bible to Mark chapter 9, we read this, and they came to Capernaum, verse 33, and when he, that is Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And he's kind of playing dumb, like, who, who wants to speak up? I heard this, you know, I'm leading you, we're walking somewhere, I hear this argument going down, and they're kind of looking at each other, it says they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Um, so if you ever feel like, I'm following Jesus, but sometimes I, get, I don't get it the first time, <laughs> you're in good company. Okay, These guys are literally walking around with Jesus, and they're not getting it because he had just said that. And by the way, if, if you look back a few verses right before where we started reading in verse 35, Jesus is talking about, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be murdered, and three days later I'll rise again. They're all like, we're with you. But can we get these special spots? And the first thing I want you to see here that Jesus is teaching is that Jesus redefines greatness in terms of service. He completely redefines the idea of greatness because here we are again with the disciples of Jesus vying for status and power and prestige. And how does Jesus answer again? I'll just jump in at verse 42 again, verses that we just read. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And I want you to just notice this contrast. He's turning the world upside down. He's saying, how do the people of this world instinctively act? How do they instinctively think about this concept of greatness? Those are the great people. Those are the successful people. And he says two things here. He says, they lord it over others and they exercise authority over Others And the, the Greek here is interesting because Jesus has taken the root words for like dominion or rule and then authority, and he's attached a prefix, kata. So he's actually saying, in the world, the people exercise kata leadership or kata authority. 
Now, why does that matter? Because the prefix kata means over or against. And what he's saying is their kind of leadership is over and against the very people that they're called to lead. Their authority is exercised over and against. In other words, it's a flex. It is, I use my power to force you to do what I want you to do, and you come and serve me, and I have control, and I have power, and that's how I feel good. By the way, it's clear from other scriptures that Jesus isn't anti-authority. He's not against their being leaders in the church. He's against this kind of kata leadership, this over and against kind of leadership where people are posturing and saying, I want to be great, so I want people to serve me. I want to have ideas, and then other people have to go and execute those ideas on my behalf because I'm great, and I have power, and I have status, and I have control. And Jesus just flips this on its head and redefines, again, greatness in terms of servanthood and says, you want to be great? You want to be first? You want to have true status in the kingdom of God? Then go be a servant of all. Go be a slave of all. And he uses two words, servant is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon, which is the idea of you go minister to the needs of others. Discern what their needs are and go meet their needs. And then the word slave is the word doulos, literally a bond slave or someone who does the will of another. He's like, you want to be great in my kingdom, then find people to minister to. Find people who have needs and actually submit your will to their needs to serve them. That's what true greatness looks like. Um, back, in, back in high school and college for a few years, I had the privilege of working in a Christian camp in the mountains of North Carolina. Awesome experience. And uh, they had a saying around there. You ever hear the expression, he who dies with the most toys wins? And it's like the American dream of like, I'm accumulating stuff and possessions and toys. And the toys just get bigger and more expensive when they break down. They're bigger and more expensive to repair or replace but they had an expression of this camp, and they said, it's not he who dies with the most toys wins. It is he who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. And it's not literally true, but it was just an expression of, like, our idea of greatness around here is not how do I accumulate stuff or power or position for me. It is how can I discern needs around me and go and jump in and help. So Jesus is defining or redefining greatness in terms of service. Now, now keep going, because I want you to notice another important detail here. As he's teaching, Jesus is saying, my disciples are not people who occasionally serve others. They are servants. In other words, Jesus is talking about not what you do, but rather who you are. And he's not only redefining greatness in terms of service, but he's, redefi he's redefining our identity in terms of service. Now, why, why does that distinction matter, that you are not merely people who happen to serve, but you are called by Jesus Christ servants? And I found this interesting when I went back to the Gospels this week. I don't know why I hadn't noticed this so much, but you know, like probably dozens of Jesus' parables, which were like his short stories with a lesson, dozens of those parables, do you know who the person in the parable was or the people in the parable? They were servants. And he's telling stories about, these are my disciples. This is you. This is me. This is the church. And he characterizes them. He characterizes us as servants. Now, why that matters is because your identity always dictates and describes your purpose. Okay? Who you are, how God designed you, always fits with your purpose. Okay? I could illustrate it like this. 
Um, I've put out a few fires in my life. I remember one time at a townhouse I used to live in, there was a small grass, grass fire and it started going up the side of the building and some neighbors, we just, we put it out, okay? And, and I've encouraged other people to obey the law, um, but I am not a firefighter and I'm not a law enforcement officer. In other words, that's not my job, that's not my purpose, that's not my responsibility. If you're a firefighter, you could say it is your essential purpose to put out fires. If you are a law enforcement officer, it is your essential purpose to enforce the law. If you're a servant, it is your essential purpose to serve God and others. I will try next week when we talk about whatever the next one is not to use a Disney illustration because this now makes two weeks in a row. But I thought of this illustration of just how, how your identity relates to your purpose, specific to serving. So there's this old, it's actually an old story that like became a Disney cartoon and then I think they remade it as a live version, but Beauty and the Beast, okay? And there's this prince of this castle and when he is inhospitable to a woman who has deliberately made herself look old and tired and haggard and not like someone that he would want to welcome and he just shuts her out in the cold and this curse falls not only on him but also on the entire castle and you know, he has to win the love of the princess before the last petal falls off the rose or he stays a beast forever, right? But there's, I mean, there's something interesting in there that the writers of this play have noticed and that is that, that all of these other characters that were like the doormen and the maids and the butler and the, the cooks and all these different characters that have been turned into like a candlestick and a clock and different things, a broomstick, they're like, what are we doing? I'm a doorman. I'm a maid. I'm a servant. And there's actually this line, life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. And that's how we should feel as Christians, that we're not merely just people going through life, accumulating stuff, accumulating power, accumulating control, but we think, I'm not whole. I'm not wholly who God has designed me to be unless I am actively looking for the needs of other people and then going and meeting those needs. So Jesus is redefining our identity in terms of servanthood. And there's all this talk about authenticity these days, like be true to yourself, right? Well, your new self in Christ is a servant. So to be true to yourself, to be authentically Christian, to be authentically an apprentice to Jesus Christ, we would be a church full of people who serve because we view ourselves as servants. So Jesus teaches this. Now, point two, because he's a rabbi and he's going through this rabbinic model, notice also how Jesus models service, okay? And this week, I just encourage you, aside from this particular specific text, just pick up a synoptic gospel in particular. John's a little bit more um, theological, a little bit more doctrinal, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just telling stories. And it's like chapter after chapter after chapter, you read stories about Jesus just walking along these dusty roads and striking up a conversation and um, stopping at a well and entering someone's home and discerning needs and using his power and his authority to serve other people over and over again. 
Now we come back to this text and notice this, this climax, this last verse that we read. After Jesus saying, you all are servants, he says this, for even the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself. So he's saying, even me, even I, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life or my life as a ransom for many. Now, again, a little, little nerd Greek lesson, okay? To serve is a part of speech called an infinitive. And in Greek, those infinitives had a couple different reasons. Here, it's what's called an infinitive of purpose. What it does is it shows you the reason, the goal, or the purpose for the action of the main verb of the sentence. So you look back at the sentence. What is the main verb? Came. Why did the son, what was the purpose of the son of man coming? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Again, like serving wasn't just something I'm like, well, I'm here for 33 years. Of course, there's going to be some service involved in 33 years of walking around this earth. No, he says the purpose, the reason I came, the reason I left the glory of heaven as the second person of the Trinity, the creator of all that is, I came to serve. So you want to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, then obviously if Jesus is modeling this and saying, this is the purpose for me coming, then there are different places where we come and go where we would say, it's my purpose. And I think that one sentence shows us two things. It shows us the centrality of service and it shows us the scope of service. I say centrality because, again, serving isn't just another thing that Jesus did. It's why he came. He's entering a home, walking down a road, striking it. Why are you striking up that conversation? To discern some needs to serve. Why are you going to that home with those religious leaders? Because you love them. And because as much as that was damaging to your reputation to meet with both the religious leaders and the down and outs and the, you know, sinners, you love them and you wanted to discern their needs. And I want you to pause for a moment and just think about your vocation or your work or your schooling. Do you, do you walk in there just thinking, well, this is the way I learn to go get that career someday, or this is, this is just what I do because I have that career, and this is the way I make money, and this is the way I provide for my needs and save up money to get the stuff I want to, to maintain a certain standard of living? Or do you walk into work or school thinking, how can I serve here? I don't mean my job description. We can put all that in a box, and you should do your job description. You agree to that, right? That's what you're getting paid for. But I don't mean just doing your job description. I mean looking at the people around you, as diverse as they are, and thinking, how can I serve you today? Or how can I be on a path of service in general for you? Because you're there. Um, same with church life. Same with your neighborhood same with the other social circles that you run in, do you walk into them as Jesus did, saying there's a centrality of service here? How would Jesus walk into this same room? How would Jesus walk into the same conversation? What would he be looking to do for people that I can be looking to do as one who says I follow him? That's the centrality of service. And I said it, he's also speaking to the scope of service. And what I mean is to what degree or extent are you willing to serve? Very often we maybe subconsciously set limits on time. I was thinking this week of some, some situations that like there was an obvious need, but I passed over it. And I was thinking, why did I do that? 
and maybe somebody can relate to this, it was like, I, I see the surface level need, but I know if I stop to serve there, my time will just be gone. Because there's a lot more under the surface, a lot more needs that's just going to suck out the rest of the day and, and then some. And that's a scary thing. But I come back to this text and I say, to what degree or extent did Jesus serve us? What was he willing to give? What was he willing to sacrifice? To what lengths was he willing to go? And he says, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. That's a very specific word that's used basically in three contexts in the Greek world. One is a ransom is the price paid to free the guilty. You know, sometimes you've committed not like a felony crime. Maybe you've committed a property crime or something like that. It's a civil case, not a criminal case. And there's a penalty. And you can say, well, if I pay you this sum of money, can we after two years or three years or something just make this go away? And maybe the person that you've harmed says, like, I agree to that, that, that restitution. That's one way that this word ransom is used. Uh, way number two is it's the price paid to release a debt. So I, I owe you a bunch of money. I've, I've taken money out or I've damaged something of yours. I owe you a debt. I pay that. Ransom is used there as well. But thirdly, and most commonly, the word ransom is the price paid to rescue a captive or a hostage. And that is not hard to imagine right now just based on what's going on in our world. I'm thinking of these images coming out of Gaza and you know, southwest Israel of hostages being taken from a concert or from their homes or off the back of a motorcycle. And if you imagine for just a moment that is your family member, a beloved family member, and you think, what would I be willing to give? What would I be willing to do to get my child back? Well, you'd probably stop at nothing, including like if, if it's an exchange of my life for theirs so that they go free, that's this word ransom. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here is I didn't just come to serve and then set limits on my service to people and say, I'm willing to go this far, but no further, or I'm willing to expend this, but no more or I'm willing to give this, but, but not that. He's saying, to the point of death on a cross, I'm willing to come and to serve you. And I'm not suggesting that you are called literally to lay down your life, because you could only do that for one person or maybe a small group of people. You couldn't do it, obviously, over and over again. So it'd be like kind of a one and done. I'm not saying that you're literally called to that, but I, I just am calling us to look at the Savior and say, if that is the scope of your service to me, does my life even begin to imitate that kind of sacrifice in terms of what I'm willing to do to meet the needs of another person, like particularly in my community of faith? Or do I set limits? And if I set limits, why do I set limits? Well, and that takes us to this. So point, point one was Jesus teaches about service. Point two is Jesus models service. Point three now is Jesus removes barriers to service. Because what I just said, I think you all intuitively, if, if you don't want to share it out loud, and like now's not the time, but in your community group, I'm just being honest of like, there are barriers to my service. There are limits. Like I'll go this far. Um, and again, you may be like me, where it's like, I see that need, but like I have no personal relationship with that person. That's, an, that's one reason why I don't need to serve you. I don't even know you. Um, another is like, I, I don't have time. 
or I don't sense that I have the resources to invest in how big this thing is. So I can't start because I know I can't finish. There's this stunning exchange in, you can turn there if you want to, John chapter 13. Between Jesus and his disciples, and I'll set the scene for you and then I'll, I'll read a few verses. So John 13, Jesus and his disciples have gone up to Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus is, this is after the triumphal entry. He's, he's ridden into Jerusalem on the back of that baby donkey, you know, major flex, right? No, he's, he's showing the opposite of Pilate, of like, I'm coming in humility, feet dragging in the dust. I've come as a servant. Now he's in this upper room, this famous upper room, and he's having the last Passover meal. So the lamb and the bread and the wine and he's in the middle of dining with his disciples, but it's the Passover meal. And he's there for the very last time before he's betrayed that very night by Judas in the garden and arrested and crucified. And the Bible says in the middle of dinner, basically, Jesus gets up from the table, goes across the room, pours a basin of water, gets a towel, and begins washing the disciples' feet with his hands. And there's this commotion where they're like, oh, no, 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 you, you can't wash my feet. And he says, yes, I'm going to wash your feet. Well, then wash all of me. And he's like, no, your, your feet, okay? And I want to just pause right there. Like, you ever thought about this scene of, like, why didn't any of the 12 disciples wash Jesus' feet? In other words, like, what, what were their objections? What were their barriers to service? Where they're like, I'm not even going to try. See, because in that culture, it was, it was the responsibility of either the host or the person who viewed themselves as the lowest. You washed people's feet. And, and I'll come back to this story in a couple weeks for a different reason, because this story actually exemplifies more than service, but it's not less than service. Because the reality is these people are walking around in sandals on dusty roads, intermixed with like livestock and animals. And as you, rec you reclined at table in those days, so you know, everybody was like, kind of like leaned on their left side at a low table, and your feet were like in the next person's face, and this person's feet are in your face. Okay, so you've walked these dusty roads, everybody's feet are dirty, nasty, and so it's just commonplace. If you're the host of the home or the person who's the lowest at that meal, you do what Jesus did. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, why, why, why did none of the disciples want to do that? And, and I'd suggest most of them would probably be like, well, I, I'm willing to wash Jesus' feet, but I don't want to wash, wash Thaddeus' feet. And like Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, I'm not washing his feet. And Simon, the zealot, I'm not washing his feet. Judas, not washing his feet. What is that barrier? They're beneath me. They're beneath me. Is it the lowest person that's supposed to wash the feet? So it's that posturing. I, I'm above them. They're beneath me. I don't owe that to them. And I want you to think about your own barriers because we'd all be like, well, if I had been there, 100% I would have washed Jesus' feet and, and everybody else. But we wouldn't have because whether, whether it was pride or selfishness or 
just a preoccupation with self or, or just you're busy, you're apathetic, you just don't care. And we have a lot of reasons why we don't serve. But John 13, John tells us this, and John was there, okay? When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I think there's this big collective gulp. But I don't think Jesus is shaming them. I think he's raising the bar on, again, you, you don't understand service. You have all these barriers to service. You have all these really good reasons why you can't engage. And he's saying, if, if I'm your Lord, kurios, it, it means Lord, master, ruler, and your rabbi can wash your feet. And then they're like, Jesus is turning everything on its head. It's not about thinking that other people are beneath me. It's about walking in his steps and receiving his grace. And if he can cleanse me, then I now have the resources to go and help other people that maybe at one point I would view as beneath me, but now it just doesn't matter because grace has leveled the playing field where we can see each other as just we're image bearers with different kinds of brokenness. And that brings us to the final thing that Jesus motivates and empowers service. So it's not just that he's removing barriers and saying like, now just go and do it. I want us to think about the fact that our salvation depends on the fact that the eternal son of God, the creator of the universe, Philippians 2 says, humbled himself, took on flesh. And do you know what Philippians 2 says? He came in the form of a servant. Very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says. Comes in any form that he wants. And he comes and says, I'm a servant. And we are saved because Jesus is willing to be a servant even to the point of death. And so if serving for you feels more like a duty than a delight, you're like, it brings me no joy, but I know I'm supposed to do certain things, so I do them. Or if you're like this, you don't feel like it's a duty, but you feel like, oh, I, I love to serve because that's how I get the praise and the applause of people. And some of you are that way. You, you, you like to serve, but it's not a selfless thing. It's more of like, come on, like, tell, me, tell me how good I did. Like, bring it on. Praise me. Thank me. People notice. And Jesus gives us a couple things here in his word that help us get over this hump and actually empower and equip this service instead of just seeing it as a duty or a applause of people. Number one, so remember what Jesus did for you. Look at the humility, the kindness, the compassion of Jesus. It's all grace. You, you didn't earn it. You, you can't repay it. It's just a gift. And now you're, you're free in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. The, the things that once held you bondage, where before you may have said, 
I, I'm too anxious to serve. Or I wouldn't even know where to start. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know how to serve. Or I just don't care, the apathetic non-server. Or whatever it is. Remember what Jesus did for you. And as that sets you free, listen to how Paul tells the Galatian church how to use that freedom. Galatians 5.13, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. I mean, part of what God is setting us free from in Christ is this complete self-absorption. He's like, you don't have to be self-absorbed anymore. You are so loved and accepted just as you are. You're forgiven just as you are. You're clean. You're an adopted child. You're my son. You're my daughter. You don't have to posture to get any kind of position. I've given you the position. You're free. Now he says, go use that freedom to just love and serve. And he's saying, particularly your family in Christ. Remember what Jesus did. But then also receive the gifts of the Spirit. When you say, what gifts? What does that got to do with serving? Well, first and foremost, it is a gift of the Spirit to give you for free a completely new nature or a new self. And so when you look at yourself and you say, well, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who naturally, instinctively, selflessly serves, well, the Spirit's saying, well, I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new way to think. And so you don't have to be the apathetic person who just doesn't care because you don't see it. You don't have to be that proud person who thinks that other people exist to serve you. You don't have to be that distracted, anxious person who doesn't even notice that other people need your help. It's like you have a new person. And that new person can exude love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, faithfulness, meekness, self-control in putting the needs of other people ahead of your own. So the Spirit gives you a new self. But second, the Bible says the Spirit gives you gifts. And those gifts are specifically to be used in the context of a body, a family, a community. To say, God has given me something very special to glorify him and to build up other believers. 1 Corinthians 12 says it this way. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And pausing right there, it's, it's very interesting that he says, like, these gifts now that we're going to go into, like serving others and hospitality and generosity and teaching and encouragement, those are manifestations of the Spirit of God. Those aren't just like a gift, like a, a physical, tangible gift. He's like, that's God at work in you. Now go, okay? So he says, for, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And he says, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. First Peter kind of summarizes all that. Peter was written later. I think he's like taking all of that. That was a lot. And he's like, let's just summarize that, okay? So here's the summary. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So amen. Let me, let me close. Let me workshop this for just a moment with four practical ways. Like what does that look like in action? Number one, observe and ask about the needs of other people. And I think that's, that's so amazing that this is what we see Jesus doing. And again, go back to the Gospels with this mindset. And uh, by the way, you'll notice you see this in this text. Mark 10, verse 36. And Jesus said to them, what? What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus in the Gospels said that all the time. Like the most observant human ever. I was like, I see your need. I see your need. I care. But he often just asked people, what do you want me to do for you? So don't just go through life, against Philippians 2 says, just, just looking after your own interests and needs. That's natural and that's not wrong. But what, it, what he says is, he doesn't say stop looking after yourself. He says, don't merely look on your own interests, but look also on the interests of others as Jesus did. So if the means of serving other people is not obvious to you, again, coworkers, family, church family, neighbors, stuff like that. If it's not immediately obvious to you, ask people specific questions. Like show a curiosity that will let you discover their needs. Then secondly, be thoughtful about how God has designed you. See, the way that I would serve someone would probably overlap with the way that you would serve that same person, but there is a, a different, I've got a different story. I've got a different background. I've got a different skill set, like just abilities. I've got a different spiritual gift maybe. And so you're looking at like, how did God design me? And what's a need, especially as you're in a community and you're looking around and you're like, I can't do everything, but there's something that fits kind of how God designed me. I'm interested in that. I'm passionate about that. I've got some gifts. They might not be as good as someone else's, but they're my gifts and they're from God. So use that to do something unique. In the analogy of the, uh, the body in 1 Corinthians 12, where he's talking about these different gifts, it's like, if you're not an eye, don't try to do the work of seeing. If you're not an ear, don't try to do the work of hearing. You're going to be frustrated. The person you're serving is going to be frustrated. But he's like, but if you're an eye, see. Because the body needs that from you. And he's like, even the unseemly, like the parts of the body that you don't want to see, he says, they're serving a necessary function. As we all work together for the glory of God and the flourishing of a church family, which enables a neighborhood to flourish. So be thoughtful about how God has designed you. Thirdly, do something. And I don't mean that to sound as legalistic as it maybe sounds. When I say do something, what I mean is don't do everything and don't do nothing. And if you've been through our new members class, you've heard that. We're like, God designed you to do something. And, and you'll find a release of joy in serving if you do something. But if everyone's doing something, then no one is having to do everything, and no one's just sitting around doing nothing, acting like a consumer. We're not consumers, we're servants. So that's what I mean by do something. I don't mean it legalistically, of like, get off your rear end and do something. But there is that, and we'll say that to some of you, right? 
because we love you. Um, finally, serve Jesus, not serving. Don't serve serving. And uh, this came up in my gospel community group this week, but remember that story of Mary and Martha? They've invited Jesus into their home. So you've got the rabbi there. You've got the, the Lord there. And he's just, he's just dwelling. He's just abiding with them and talking. And, uh, you know, Martha's in the kitchen. And, and, and don't picture your modern house, even a small modern house. I mean, houses back then, y'all, were small, okay? So Martha's kind of right there, but her focus is on serving. She's making the meal. And she's getting increasingly frustrated as she sees, like, Mary's just listening to Jesus. Like, what's her deal? Like, and I, I, I just picture her just intentionally getting louder and louder and like sighing deeper and deeper so everyone can kind of like start to hear the passive aggressive, why am I doing this by myself kind of thing. And she finally comes and she's like, Jesus, tell her she's supposed to get in the kitchen and help me. And I, this is a balancing point that some of you need to hear. That if you become so preoccupied with service for service sake, even serving God, I mean, she was literally serving Jesus. And I identified much more with Martha of like, Jesus is here, we got to do something for him. Then I identified with Mary of like, Jesus is here, I'm not going to do anything for him, I'm just going to sit with him and just listen and like look into his eyes and just be present. But that is a balancing point for some of you that you need to serve Christ, not Serving, not serving as a means to an end. Don't let serving become an idol where you're frustrated at other people who maybe, maybe they're not doing their part and maybe there needs to be a conversation, but that conversation can come across a lot different if, if serving is not your idol or your means to the applause and affirmation of other people because it's your identity in a negative way. But you're like, I'm content to be with Jesus and serve Jesus, not angry, not frustrated, not anxious about many things, but so present with Jesus that when the needs of other people pop up, and they pop up all the time, I know how he would jump in because I know him. So I just leave it open to you. What is Jesus calling you to as his follower when service is his identity, his practice, and he calls us to walk in his steps and see the needs of other people and care deeply about them and maybe sacrifice more than we're accustomed to sacrificing to care in the ways that he would care.